ask people, do you want to pay more taxes? They'll say no. 80% will say no. If you ask people, do you want to cut Social Security, Medicare, education, environmental spending? They'll say no. And then if you ask, are you willing to pay more taxes if it goes to Social Security, Medicare, healthcare, environment, etc.? A majority will say yes. So it's it's a it's a messaging issue, I think. Uh, people need to have a better understanding of what um, of what benefits they get from from government. Welcome to the Black Agenda Podcast. I'm your co-host Adrian Guest, along with my co-host Devin Dito. And we're taking uh, kind of a sidestep here because earlier in our uh, season, we talked a little bit about, a little bit about taxation and balance on the local level. But now we're wanting to broaden this thing out and look at it, you know, maybe on a federal, even a global stance. And to kind of help us out, we've joined uh, by another expert, uh, Dr. William Gale, co-director of the Tax Policy Center. And just to give you a little bit more insight about Dr. Gale, uh, in addition to being the co-director, he is the R.J. and Francis Miller Chair in Federal Economic Policy in the Economic Studies Program at Brookings. Also serves as a senior, uh, rather, Dr. Gale served as a senior economist for the Council of Economic Advisors under President George H.W. Bush. He also served as a president of the National Tax Association from 2019 to 2020 and was a vice president at Brookings. His research has been published in several scholarly journals. He has written extensively in policy-related publications and newspapers, including op-eds in CNN, the Financial Times, LA Times, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Washington Post. So as always, listeners, we get great guests on the Black Agenda podcast. And uh, to Dr. Gale, we appreciate you being with us. Thanks. I'm very happy to be here. All right. Perfect. Perfect. So just to kind of transition us, um, our first segment is really talking about, you know, why taxation policy, you know, leads to inefficiency or rather how it can lead to inefficiency and inequality. And to kind of start us off, Bill, um, we wanted to give a little bit of further context to this because I read a, a paper that you sent us before we kind of, you know, talked about this that talked about how uh, racism can play into a lot of policies. And you concluded that paper by saying, you know, we need to, quote, you know, remove blinders that prevent us from seeing that racism uh, has anchored itself in every aspect of American society. So to kind of start us off, Bill, when people think of taxes, it's a complex you know, system and it might be hard for them to see where racism lies. So if you could, you know, explain to our listeners how tax policies just in general can promote racial inequality. Sure. Uh, I think it's a fair statement to say that the tax system was designed by white people with white people in mind. And uh, thus, even if there was not any explicit intent uh, to discriminate, there are a variety of ways uh, that there's implicit uh, discrimination. Uh, one of the great examples uh, that I read about a few years ago has to do with uh, Latinos. And uh, uh, there's a child care uh, credit. That is, you can get a tax subsidy if you put your kid in a official child care organization. Uh, but Latinos tend to care for their kids in large extended family networks. Uh, so presumably, so they're not able to benefit from this as much because their relatives are taking care of it. That's a good example. It's a, it's a kind of a very kind of uh, 
innocent sounding example where, where I don't think anyone, when they designed that subsidy, intended to exclude Latinos, but it probably never crossed their mind that while some people put their kids in childcare, other people have their families, their extended families, uh, take care of their kids. And you can go through, uh, you know, other examples like that where, where, uh, uh, it's not ex- there's not explicit discrimination uh, in the tax code, but but you know it was like sort of when the when the cash when all of the cashier's mistakes are in the store's favor, you know you begin to wonder after a while, and you want to check uh, and look at each receipt and make sure that that it's legitimate. Let me give you one other example: uh, the mortgage interest deduction uh, recently was curtailed, so now only about ten percent of Households take it, but uh, back in the day, a quarter or thirty percent of households that filed taxes uh, took the mortgage interest deduction. But in order to take the deduction, you need to have enough mortgage interest uh, to make it worthwhile. It needed to be bigger than what was than the the standard deduction. Now, that's a race neutral uh, feature taken in isolation, but then you combine that with redlining in housing markets, which restricted black individuals or black families to certain areas with depressed values. And you can see they weren't able to take the mortgage introduction because their houses weren't worth enough, that their mortgages weren't big enough, that they couldn't take the deduction. So so there are these very complicated interactions that once you start looking for them, uh, you see them everywhere. And, uh, you know, things that are as, as innocuous and all-American as subsidies for childcare and mortgage interest uh, deductions uh, show these features. And you, you can go through all, you know, numerous other features of the tax code uh, and see that kind of situation there, too. And, and that's a perfect, you know, kind of segue into the second question when you're talking about housing and home ownership, that's a big thing that we've talked about here on the show, just the importance of that and how that's a driver for people, you know, acquiring and, and gaining wealth throughout their lives and being able to pass that on. And when you talk and when you look at it, one of the interesting things we saw, like you just kind of talked about it where, you know, redlining, you just really, uh, you know, cause a deterioration in our neighborhoods because of the, the such low values of the homes there. Um, but the interesting thing that we were kind of saw too was that in in a lot of places when you talk about the local governments there seems to be like an overvaluing of low-income residencies and an undervaluing of high-income residences and this impacts your property taxes Um, and so what we were seeing is that um, there seems to be an imbalance really when you're talking about property taxes where low-income households are paying more you know for their you know paying a higher percentage of their income towards property taxes than say you know, um, high income residences, and it's tied back to the assessments that the local government's doing. Um, just maybe, you know, talk about just what kind of, I wouldn't say what's wrong, but what what are we doing wrong with how we handle property taxes in, in this country? Uh, the property tax issue is really interesting. There have been a couple of papers by professors at uh, University of California and University of Utah who have documented the pattern that you mentioned uh, that that uh, uh, households owned by minority families uh, tend to be 
overvalued for assessment purposes relative to their market value. And uh, uh, for uh, white families, the opposite. And uh, uh, it's a little bit of a mystery how that comes about. I mean, I don't think anyone is prepared to say that all property tax assessors are racist. Uh, but one of the interesting mechanisms that, that they document is that uh, white families are more willing to appeal uh, property tax assessments and uh, they're more willing, they're more likely to win given an appeal and they get bigger adjustments given that they win. Uh, so um, you, then you ask, well, why does that occur? And, you know, I'm an economist. I am not a sociologist or a social anthropologist, but, but I feel like it has to be some sense of kind of uh, I, entitlement might be too strong a word, but I'm going to use that because I can't think of better, but some sense of entitlement on behalf of uh, white households that they have, they have the right to appeal these judgments and minority households might feel more intimidated uh, by the process and be less likely uh, to appeal. So uh, this is, I think, testimony to the fact that, that these things work in very complicated ways. They percolate through the system uh, in all sorts of ways, seen and unseen. And um, I've, I've only started studying racist issues, racism and uh, race issues in, in tax policy in the last couple of years. But, and I've studied lots of other issues you know, pensions and charitable contributions and state taxes and alternative minimum tax and saving incentives. I've never seen an area like race where every time you pick up an issue and look at it, you see confirming evidence like this. And uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's sort of like, I, I think I mentioned this paper, it's sort of like looking at an Escher drawing and not getting it. And then all of a sudden, you know, you see it. And once you see it, you can't you can't unsee it. That's a great point uh, of how to look at it, Bill. And that's how we look at it. It's obviously we're you know, maybe more biased because we grew up in the community. So we know how it's you know influenced. But we're really glad that you brought that up. And just to kind of round off our our segment here. Um, one of the things that I, I think about in this concept of taxation is trickle down economics and kind of how that maybe helped to uh, shape some of the policies around this, because kind of the idea behind that is that if we lower taxes on corporations and really wealthy people, they're going to pass on those benefits through wages, investments in the community, job creation, et cetera. But we know that that's not how it's really working. And even in recent polling, like 51% of Americans say that they don't even believe that that's working. So, you know, is there, is there, you know, does, has trickle down economics, does that play into the way our tax system was, you know, framed? Uh, or is there a way to maybe, you know, have trickle down economics in an appropriate way? Uh, trickle down economics is one of the most powerful metaphors out there. I think there's an element of truth to it in the sense that you can destroy the economy if you destroy the capital stock. But the way it's presented uh, that, you know, tax cuts for the rich are, are going to make everybody better off. Uh, I think that's basically a con. And 
uh, there's a lot of evidence across countries over time uh, that that tax cuts for the rich don't grow the economy. They simply increase the share of the pie that the rich get. And uh, of course, given that they're not growing the economy and they're increasing the share that the riches get, that means they're they're coming. It's coming at the expense of everyone else. And so, uh, what you see, if I can segue for a second to current policies, what you see in Build Back Better is that Congress is considering and the administration has put forward. What you see there is an alternative theory of what makes the economy work, and that's uh, providing infrastructure providing people with education, uh, making it possible for people to work by, by making childcare affordable, making the communities where people work better. I mean, sorry, making the communities where people live uh, better and healthier and safer and more affordable. And uh, that, that's sort of a, what you might call a bottom up theory of how to build the economy. Supply side economics is kind of a top down theory and uh, I, I feel like it's time that we gave the bottom-up theory uh, a serious chance. Uh, there's a lot of evidence accumulating the government health care, uh, that education, uh, the child care, the earned income subsidies uh, really have lasting and significant uh, effects and, and uh, uh, really do make people better off over, over long periods of time. Absolutely. And, you know, that's why people like America so much. They think that we're chock full of those sorts of things. So what we're going to do, we're going to take a break here, Bill. And when we come back, listeners, we're going to get into our second segment, which Bill actually lined it up talking about some current policy. So stick with this. We'll be right back. We absolutely appreciate your support. You are the foundation and our efforts work to better your communities. Tell your family and friends so we can all work to bring progress. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, welcome back. Let's get into our second segment here. Remember, we're joined today with Dr. William Gale. He is a senior fellow of economic studies at Brookings. And as we said before, we get into our second segment talking about current tax policy. One of the things that I saw, Bill, uh, looking on, I think it's statsta.com, corporate profits in 2020 were $2.24 trillion, and that's with a T. And just so you know, people know, profit is after companies paid off liabilities. So that's you know, cash they keep. Clearly, corporate tax policy is something that's an issue that's got to be addressed if we're going to you know, properly fund our government and have you know, society here. And I feel like, Bill, when I look at a lot of the proposals around corporate tax reform, it's always about, you know, just raising the corporate tax rate or maybe establishing a global you know, minimum tax rate. You know, my question to you, Bill, are, are these solutions adequate enough or are they just going to be you know, additional loopholes and ways for corporations to lobby around these? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I have a bugaboo that I feel like the corporate debate needs to focus on the tax base much more than the tax rate. It's true of the income tax too. If you can get the base right, that is the base is what you're actually taxing. So sales and a sales tax, for example, if you can get that right in a way that, that uh, uh, doesn't allow people to avoid taxes, it doesn't allow people to rearrange their affairs to, 
you know, uh, to minimize taxes or delay taxes, uh, you've gotten 90% of the problem solved. And the public debate tends to focus on the rates. Do we raise rates on corporations? Do we raise, raise rates on the rich? And it's not as effective as it could be if the base is full of holes, because as you raise rates, you give people or companies more incentive uh, to engage in these tax avoidance activities. And if they're, if the base allows them, then they can do it. They can drive a Mack truck through the, through the loophole. So uh, on both the individual side, but in particular the corporate side, uh, uh, if they could get the base right, um, they could, then they could raise rates uh, a bit more and still be competitive and raise a bunch of money. That's an interesting way of, of, of looking at it. I don't think a lot of people, you know, we, the, the headlines is, you know, the tax rate for corporations that, that draws people in. And, and another question we had was just because we do have a progressive tax system, um, high income, high income earners typically pay a larger share of their income in federal taxes uh, than low-income families. And this progressive system is supposed to, I don't know if it's supposed to, but it does reduce income inequality. But an interesting thing we've seen over, say, the last 40 years is that income inequality has con- continued to rise, um, despite the fact that we still have a progressive tax system. So just, you know, from your perspective, your opinion, you know, what is driving the income inequality that we're continuing to see? And what role is the, you know, the current tax system playing in that? Yeah, that's a great question. The income inequality is one of those issues where uh, there are lots of things going on. The basic story that I think most uh, people, would, most economists would buy into is that uh, the demand for skilled labor has gone up faster than the demand for unskilled labor and the supply of skilled labor has lagged behind. So, Wages, earnings of high skill earners have has gone up over time, and and for low earners it's uh, stagnated. Now some some of that's blamed on globalization, some of it's blamed on automation, uh, and there's that's what I mean. There's lots of there's lots of strands to this story, uh, but the it, one way to think about it is we see this increasing inequality in other countries around the world too. So it's not some uniquely American thing that's happening. It's a very broad-based, multifaceted uh, phenomenon. Uh, having said that, the taxes uh, are not going to eliminate, you know, all inequality. They're not going to eliminate all the increase in inequality. We probably don't want them to. We want tax. We want some of that inequality growing because that's the that creates the incentives. Uh, to get people to work more, to change professions, to invest, etc. Uh, it's really a question of balance. You know, how much inequality do we want? When does inequality become uh, uh, self-defeating? Uh, in the sense that um, uh, you know, inequality can cause more inequality. Like if poor kids can't get education uh, or don't have cars and can't get the jobs, then that makes them poor adults. And that recreates the process. So we want to we want to uh, get rid of bad inequality, if you will. And bad inequality is is inequality that that stifles mobility, that stifles uh, growth, innovation, uh, uh, 
personal growth, uh, economic mobility. And so um, taxes can play a role in that. But in my view, really, the spending side is even more important. Uh, there's this tendency to run ta- to run subsidies through the tax code. Uh, Republicans like it because it's tax cuts and Democrats like it because it's helping the poor. Uh, but uh, the tax code is, and the IRS are not well designed to administer programs to help low income or disadvantaged households and make much more sense to run them uh, on the spending side of the budget uh, and, and actually, you know, provide funds rather than expect people to get tax refunds and use their money for that purpose and stuff like that. So inequality is, is a, you know, multi-headed monster. Uh, tax policy can be part of the solution uh, and spending party spending policy can be part of the solution too, but the solution uh, should focus on eliminating bad inequality, uh, uh, not removing all of the incentive effects. No, I think that's, you know, that's a great point. I appreciate the explanation of just showing how, um, you know, how complex, you know, the problem is. Taxes is just one small part of it. Um, but we, I did want to ask, too, quickly, just about, you know, the Trump tax cuts and, and what really happened with that. Because, you know, in my situation, like, I think over across the board, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but most people did see a tax cut. But it seemed as though withholdings were adjusted. Because even in my situation, it seemed I had never paid, you know, paid in before up until the, the Trump tax cuts were passed. And then all of a sudden I ended up owing every year. And so it seemed like something had changed, you know, with the withholding. So what exactly did the Trump tax cuts do and how much of that is do you think that they passed will actually end up being permanent? Or, you know, is there a way for some of the things that they did do to be like undone by the Biden administration? Uh, let me take the second question first. The My guess about how much of it is going to be permanent is much larger now than it would have been six months ago uh, because Congress does not seem uh, to have the votes to uh, to undo some of the tax rate cuts, to undo this major uh, deduction for pass-through businesses, uh, to undo the corporate rate cuts, to undo the estate tax uh, cuts. And so um, I thought that that would be like first order of business for the Biden administration and the Democratic Congress, but uh, it's been stymied uh, by Senator Sinema in particular. And uh, 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 so I don't know, those things uh, may well stay in the code. Uh, but if you take a step back, the, the Trump tax cuts, they did a lot of things. Uh, uh, it was a quite quite complex and wide reaching piece of legislation. Uh, largely what they did was cut taxes on capital income. So state tax, corporate tax, pass through businesses, uh, and so on. Uh, and that of course, uh, accrues, uh, mainly the high income households. And in some cases to very high income households, the pass through deduction is giving, you know, million dollar deductions to, to, uh, a small minority uh, of people. Um, uh, and so whether they stay permanent, I, 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 again, I, I think they're more likely than not at this point. Um, uh, unless, I mean, it would require the Democrats increasing the majority in the next election. And 
I don't know that, I mean, I'm not a political expert, but I, what I read is that people don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. Right um, I, I, I was going to say we're, we're some of those people as well, because uh, it, it's a, it's about, you know, delivering on, on, you know, some of their proposals and, and speaking of some of their proposals, just to kind of round off this segment here, one of the proposals that we saw, um, trying to come out of Congress is, you know, some sort of billionaires tax. You know, when you look at the United States, you know, we've got the most billionaires, you know, 724 of them. And, you know, a lot of critics, you know, say that billionaires are some of them like Jeff Bezos are able to kind of get away with certain things like, you know, claiming to have, you know, an $80,000 salary, but have, you know, billions of dollars in stock holdings and be able to collateralize those stocks to, you know, as personal loans. You know, Senator Manchin said it's unfair to target this class of of people who've been highly successful. So uh, to kind of round this off, Bill, you know, how do we how do we you know properly tax this category of high earners without, you know, being punitive uh, to being high successful and taking away that, you know, that incentive that you were talking about? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned this because uh, Devin mentioned earlier the tax code is progressive. And it generally is. I meant to, to add in this proviso that at the very top, uh, it may well not be because the, the Jeff Bezos and the Elon Musks and the Warren Buffetts of the world are getting all their income via uh, unrealized capital or getting all their wealth via unrealized capital gains. And uh, they're able to borrow against that to finance lavish lifestyles. But if they don't cash in the capital gains, they, they don't sell the assets. They don't pay capital gains taxes. And when they die, uh, the, the basis, the, the cost basis of the assets is stepped up to the current value. So they never pay capital gains taxes uh, on those capital gains. And uh, Senator Wyden uh, is trying to change that with his billionaire tax on unrealized gains. And uh, I think uh, – uh, it's not going to, I don't think it's going to happen, but, uh, there's definitely a problem, uh, uh, with that particular, uh, uh, part of the tax system. Note, by the way, that that's a base issue, not a rates issue. The, the unrealized capital gains are left out of the base. Uh, the only time capital gains are included when people actually sell the asset. And since people have control over when they sell the asset, it makes the capital gains tax kind of a voluntary tax. And uh, uh, Senator Wyden and many other people, uh, myself included, would like to see that changed. No, I think that's that's interesting, you know, that you say that. And I love the fact you, you said it again, that the base is the issue, not the rate. A lot of people get hung up on the rate, but I, I like the fact that you're changing the conversation to we need to be taxing the right things first before we get to how much that rate is going to be. So I appreciate that. And it's an interesting conversation too, because it's like uh, Elon Musk is, you saw the news stories, I think in the last couple of weeks, people were saying he's going to be the first trillionaire, you know, here in America. And so it's like, we're barreling towards that and we still haven't figured out the tax code of what to do with people who may have that much money. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's exactly right. There's an enormous concentration of wealth uh, uh, at the top. And um, uh, I mean, these, if you take like the top 10 
people by wealth, uh, Musk and Bezos and Buffett and Gates or maybe whoever else, have you, those top 10 people have a noticeable share like of aggregate wealth in the United States. Like it's in the couple of percent type of thing. And uh, that's, you know, that's, I mean, more power to them. That's amazing. But that's this huge, this huge set of resources that the government is choosing not to tax. Meanwhile, we're arguing about whether we can afford to have paid leave uh, for mothers. Uh, (laughs) And there's this, it's just, it's the goal is not in my mind, the goal is not just to tax these people for their, because they're rich. The goal is to uh, uh, provide a good society and have people who have the ability to pay uh, to pay appropriately. And here you've got, I mean, if you think about, if you think about how much a billion dollars is, right, there is no possible way any human being would ever need a billion dollars uh, for their personal life. I'm not, I'm not saying abolish all billionaires. I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> but I'm just saying if you think about ability to pay, um, a billion is an awfully big number. 200 billion is, is indescribably big. You're right. And it's, you know, we're, we're not the ones that like to say that, you know, to demonize um, billionaires because I'm not the the Elizabeth Warren and the Bernie Sanders that demonize them because you know my undergrad is in is in economics and one of the things we study in labor economics is that you know you've got this superstar phenomenon where because of globalization and great ideas people are able to you know sell ideas to billions of people so you can't demonize them but like you said it's about you know, equity opportunities, not taking away that incentive and, 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 and making sure that we tax the base accordingly. And I'm glad, Bill, you're talking about this because you're setting up a future episode we're going to be talking about, which is how taxation can really better um, society through a lot of reform. So, but what we're going to do with this conversation, we're going to take another break here and we're going to come back and do our third segment where we want to really look at how we can have some different reforms that can make taxation more equitable. So listeners, stick with us. We'll be right back. Would you like to contribute to a scholarship fund? Would you like to help us partner with nonprofits? Would you like to submit a topic request or maybe even appear on our show? If so, go to patron.podbean.com forward slash black agenda pod. Thank you for your donation and belief in our mission. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, welcome back. Let's get into our third segment here. Remember, we're joined today by Dr. William Gale. He's the RJ and Francis Fearing Miller Chair in Federal Economic Policy at Brookings. And to kind of get us going here in the third segment, talking about reform, um, I've just got kind of a you know a, a low-lying fruit question here for you, Bill. Um, I'm not a Mike Huckabee fan, but I will say he's the person that introduced me to this idea, which was a consumption tax. And I've seen this kind of thrown around out there. And I've seen some people say that if we had a consumption tax, you could even, you know, maybe lower uh, different taxes or maybe exempt sort of consumption on housing, food, medical care, maybe even savings and investments for lower income and things like that. So, Bill, in your mind, do you see a consumption tax being something that could be beneficial for America? Uh, there, this are, Let me try to give you a short answer to that question. Uh, there are... Uh, 
you could do a consumption tax two different ways. One is uh, essentially a value added tax, which is like a sales tax, but it's collected in little pieces at each stage of production rather than all at the retail level. And the reason to do a value added tax is, is that it's easier to administer. It's easier to enforce all European countries, for example, have value added taxes and they all use them to replace sales taxes, which they found hard to, to administer. Uh, if you do a VAT, you want to tax everything in it, food, prescription drugs, housing, clothing, everything, and then rebate the money and, uh, uh, or rebate some of the money. And, uh, that's a much better way, uh, to, to provide necessities. I wrote a paper on how you could have a VAT and use it to fund a universal basic income. And, and the combination of that is a very progressive policy because the universal basic income gives everybody the same amount of money and the VAT, the tax payments, would be proportional to your consumption, proportional to your standard of living. So your tax payments would go up as your standard of living went up, but your UBI would stay the same, right? So the, the net benefit you got would be very high if you were low income. It would, I set it up so that the middle class would break even and then upper classes would, would end up paying on net. They'd pay more in VAT than they got in the back in the UBI. Okay, so you could do a VAT that way. And if you do, then it's important to, to focus on how the money is spent. Uh, the, the other way to do a consumption tax is essentially an income tax that allows a deduction for saving. So, uh, you know, people have their income, they can either consume it or save it. So if you take the amount of their income they have that they didn't save, that's consumption. So it's just, just like the regular income tax, but out of deduction for saving. And uh, the reason to do it that way is uh, twofold. One is you can jack the rates way up and you're not discouraging. If, if you did jack the rates up, you'd be discouraging consumption not saving an investment. You'd be encouraging saving investment. Uh, uh, and uh, let's see, I said there were two reasons. Uh, oh, the other is that you would just build off the existing system. Uh, and you could, oh, I'm sorry, there's a third reason. Uh, right now, as we mentioned earlier, very wealthy people can borrow money and use, against their assets and use that to finance their lifestyle. In a consumption tax like that, you would include borrowing as consumption and you would conclude debt repayment as, as saving, basically. So if they tried to borrow money, that would get added into the base, the consumption base, and then they have to pay a big, big tax on it. Uh, so um, I want to say this is not an either or necessarily an either or thing. You could, in principle, you know, invoke both taxes. You could uh, – uh, the VAT is off – is – the VAT is not that different from the current corporate income tax that you could get from here to there in two or three steps. Uh, and the progressive consumption tax is not that different from the current income tax. Uh, you could get there in a couple of steps as well. So I think um, uh, for incentive reasons uh, and equity reasons and uh, intergenerational fairness or equity reasons, that is, uh, you know, uh, paying for what we want to invest in, I think we definitely have to consider both of those types of consumption taxes. But let me add, I know this is a long answer, let me add one more thing. Uh, the first order business 
is plugging the holes in the tax code that let the wealthy avoid taxes. And that means taxing capital gains at death, uh, reducing the estate tax exemption, uh, and getting rid of the 199, the pass-through deduction that was enacted in uh, uh, 2017. And if we could do those three things alone, that wouldn't perfect things, but that would be a huge step uh, in the right direction in terms of raising revenues, making the system fairer, making the system more efficient by closing loopholes. Uh, and uh, I'm just really surprised that these things, the Biden administration had proposed them, uh, but they did not have legs in Congress. Like, like many know, things yeah. that they proposed, <laughs> but go ahead, Devin. Yeah. No, you're, you're right. Yes, that's what many things have we've been waiting on to get passed, but they haven't. Um, but we did want to ask you about, too, um, this reminded me of a quote, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste. Uh-huh. Uh, in, a, in a lot of ways, the pandemic was a great opportunity to try different things because, Yes, it was a crisis, but it also was an opportunity for Congress to kind of experiment with economic and tax policies that have kind of been sort of talked about. We've, we've heard about universal basic income and these different things, but Congress actually had a chance to sort of test it out in a way. Um, and not only with sending out the stimulus checks, it sent out three, but also with the child tax credit and expanding that, making it fully refundable and then making it advanceable with six payments, you know, for the, the latter half of this year. I mean, this is essentially an economic experiment, and it's a different way of using, of looking at the tax system rather than seeing it just as a way to raise revenue, or it's really a way to redistribute resources to low-income families. And so, um, with the tax, the 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 child tax credit has already been seen to to lift kids out of poverty and things like that. So, what do you think? You know, should the government be putting more emphasis or? looking more at using the tax code to kind of fix some of these issues we're talking about when we talk about, say, income inequality. Uh, we know low-income people uh, or low-income families typically get big earned income credits. That's the reason a lot of them get very large refunds. So that's been a huge factor in helping people make it. So what do you? What was your kind of takeaway from what Congress did during uh, the, the pandemic? And what do you think we'll, we'll use in the future, maybe, as far as trying to fix some of the chronic issues we have. Yeah. I'm really glad you asked that because it's uh, two, two reactions, two comments. One is uh, it's very easy to dump on Congress and the political sausage that gets made. And I, I have done that as much as anybody, Uh, but their response to the COVID pandemic and the shutdown of the economy was basically right. It could have been better. But it was basically big and immediate and uh, what a friend of mine calls spaghetti economics, which is you take all these ideas, you throw them against the, up against the wall, and you see which, which ones stick. And, and, you know, the COVID came on very quickly. And, you know, we remember, the, you know, everyone shut down, everyone was sent home, you know, uh, uh, and Congress reacted very quickly, very boldly. You know, they didn't get all the details right, and I, I'm not going to defend all the details, but but they they really jumped jumped on the situation and acted boldly. So I, I love to dump on Congress, but I want to also give them give them two two cheers on the general pandemic response. Although of course they could have done more. Uh, 
uh, are better targeted, especially in retrospect. Um, on the, the second comment is the child credit and the things that are in the Build Back Better bill uh, are pretty are pretty transformational, pretty big deals, uh, even though um, the public discussion is that it's been whittled down. It's still a very big bill. It, it does stuff, uh, you know, on education, uh, universal pre-K. It does stuff on child care. Uh, it puts 4 million more people. It, it adds them to the Medicaid rolls. Uh, it provides uh, – uh, a variety of uh, climate change initiatives, uh, not the carbon tax that I would like to see, but but lots of other initiatives. It really does do a lot, and uh, I think the there's a messaging issue that that uh, it's been beaten down. But if you look at if look at what it actually does, it's a pretty fundamental transformational bill, and the provisions regarding kids are are one of the most important. Now, and one of the things that kind of, you know, round off this segment, you know, because talking about some reforms, you know, we understand that a lot of things that we're talking about here are probably not going to get passed, maybe, or they're going to take some time maybe to get passed. Um, so going, so think about some of the loopholes and the things that are there, you know, Donald Trump, you know, we know that he paid such low taxes and kind of bragged and said it's because he's smart. And you know, we saw, you know, reports like companies, Amazon, who make billions of dollars, you know, paying no taxes. You know, Bill, is, is there a way to, you know, shift the focus to get, you know, everyday citizens like you and I that can benefit from these same loopholes? Or, you know, do you just have to be those super, super higher earners to, you know, ever get those sort of benefits? Uh, my colleague David Wessel just wrote a book called Only the Rich Can Play, which is about uh, a provision enacted in the 2017 tax act called Opportunity Zones, uh, which basically, uh, in my view, are enormously misguided policies. They basically give, they basically give, sorry, opportunity. David Wessel, my colleague, wrote this book on Opportunity Zones, uh, which are, in my view, enormously misguided policy. They give wealthy households tax benefits if investments that they make in distressed areas pay off well. So there's two problems with this. One is there's a very political uh, uh, determination of what a distressed area is. I've been in a conference at a world-class hotel in Tampa that was actually in an opportunity zone, which which – ridiculous to me. Uh, but the other is the criterion for getting the federal tax subsidy is that the investment pay off well. It's not that anybody gets more education or that the crime rate goes down or that the amount of lead in the water goes down. Uh, you know, the investment can increase violence and destroy jobs. As long as the investor makes money, the investor will get a tax break, right? That just seems enormously misguided to me uh, on so many dimensions. And uh, that's an example, again, where the book is called Only the Rich Can Play. You need a big investment to be able to to take advantage of that. Uh, there's a number of features like that in the tax code where I think uh, the first priority is taxing the rich and closing off the avoidance schemes. I mentioned the, the pass-through business, the taxing capital gains at death, 
uh, the estate tax, stuff like that, and this, uh, the, these opportunity zones. Uh, there are huge subsidies in real estate that, that Trump benefited from uh, that don't seem merited to me at all, and so on. So that's tax avoidance. That's one issue. The second issue is tax evasion, which is illegally avoiding, Ill- illegally not paying taxes. And the Biden administration has tried to really go after this. Here's a stat to keep in your head. One out of every $7 that is owed to the federal government is not paid every year. One out of every $7. So, uh, and we know where that money is. It's in farms. It's in sole proprietorships. It's in businesses. It's in uh, partnerships. uh, And the IRS knows this through audits. Some of this maybe is an offshore uh, uh, and, uh, the IRS needs the resources uh, to be able to go after these people. Their audit staff has fallen 30% in the last decade. And so um, uh, the Biden administration has made reducing evasion a, a top uh, issue. So those are things we can do to increase equity uh, in the tax system. And then if we want to move, those are like first order immediate, you can get there from here easily type of changes. Uh, then if you want to create a VAT and use the money to rebate to people, uh, that's a bigger change. That's a whole new tax system, new forms, blah, 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 blah. Uh, but that would also, I think, increase increase equity significantly if the money were spent uh, either, you know, on families or health care or universal basic income. No, I mean, that's 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 great. I, mean, I appreciate you laying it out there as far as the, the issues we need to be focusing on, because a lot of people will hear tax system or tax code or taxation and our eyes glaze over because they don't, you know, it's, it's fairly complicated, but I, I know just at least the IRS is like you say, kind of understaffed and doesn't have the resources to really go after these folks. Cause you can say tax the rich all you want to and trying to go after them. But if the IRS does not have the resources and ability to go after them in a, in a serious way, then it's just a moot point because they're not going to just, you know, be like, oh, what's Congress raised my taxes? I'm going to pay them. I guess I'll do it now. They're not going to do that. They have lawyers for days <laughs> because they have so much money. They can fight in, find every nook and cranny where they can hide money. And so it's just not as simple as some people think it is. It's just say, hey, we're going to we're going to tax the rich and they're just going to pay it. Like, that's not how this is going to play out. Um, but we're, we'll go ahead and wrap up our conversation. We have one final question for you. Uh, Bill, and so we're going to get there. So we're going to take a quick break, listeners, and we'll be right back. You have been listening to the Black Agenda podcast hosted by Adrian Guest and Devin Dito. If you enjoy listening to the show, let the host know by leaving a review on Apple Podcast or by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash Black Agenda pod and give a few dollars. After all, the Black Agenda podcast is supported by listeners like you. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, welcome back here. As always, we're rounding off our conversations with our expert during our final message. Remember, we're joined today by Dr. William Gale, director of the Retirement Security Project. So, Bill, we've talked a lot about taxation. It's a great conversation for me. Um, Like I said, my background is in economics, so I, I like talking about all these kinds of things. You know, whenever I think about America... There's a notion of the American dream here, Bill, and people come for opportunity. Unfortunately, that's not the case. And, you know, I feel that the government has to step up to kind of help in a lot of these inequities and these, you know, missed opportunities. 
But I realize it takes money. I mean, it takes money to provide great schools, efficient public transportation, equitable services for all. And a lot of that comes to having a tax system that properly funds the government. But me, you, Devin, none of us probably like to pay taxes and probably no one at any level likes to pay taxes. So, Bill, you know, for your final message, you know, what's some advice that you can give to people to just help them realize that, you know, we're we're kind of like a line item on the on the budget of our country. And if we want a better functioning country, you know, fair taxation is a part of that. Uh, that's right. And and um, of course, Nobody, you know, nobody loves paying taxes. Uh, there's a, of course, these famous quotes uh, from Brandeis about taxes or, is it Brandeis? Ta- taxes are the price you pay for civilization. That uh, I, I actually don't think it's him. I, uh, it's somebody else. Uh, but I, I think one way policymakers could deal with this It's not ideal from an economic perspective, but it might be necessary from a political perspective is to earmark specific taxes for specific purposes. Like uh, people might not really want a VAT uh, or consumption tax, uh, you know, a sales tax on everything. But if they knew it was going to fund the universal basic income or universal health care or child allowances for every family with kids, uh, they might be more willing to pay it. So uh, formally, you know, social security taxes, for example, are earmarked toward social security benefits and Medicare taxes are earmarked for, for Medicare benefits. So uh, it might be that earmarking a major tax for a major purpose uh, would make it more popular. You know, there are, there are issues with that. Like what happens if the spending need goes up faster than the revenue does, you know, then it becomes constraining. But uh, I think people need to see, uh, like if you ask people, do you want to pay more taxes? They'll say no. 80% will say no. If you ask people, do you want to cut Social Security, Medicare, education, environmental spending? They'll say no. And then if you ask, are you willing to pay more taxes if it goes to Social Security, Medicare, healthcare, environment, etc.? A majority will say yes. So it's it's a it's a messaging issue, I think. Uh, people need to have a better understanding of what um, of what benefits they get from from government. There's that famous discussion earlier this century where someone told a candidate to keep your government hands off my Medicare, right? And so Medicare, of course, is a government program. So. Right. So uh, just people need to uh, – there was another survey where a, a minority of people who were on Social Security said that they had ever received the government benefit, all right? You know, and so people just don't understand. They're not putting it together. And uh, I think what we can – one of the things we all can do as commentators and analysts – is uh, work on that messaging issue, show the connections. That's been something that me and even me and Adrian have talked about everything. And I wouldn't say everything, but a lot of things, particularly with the democratic party that they propose, there just seems to be a messaging issue. It just doesn't come across clear to what they're asking for. What is this going to do? What does this mean for me? And I think back to, um, 
Bernie Sanders during the debates, I think it was last year, during the last presidential primary, when he was asked about Medicare for all and whether taxes were going to go up, he just didn't plainly say, yes, your taxes are going to go up, but you're going to get free health care out of it. It just, he kind of danced around it. And that to me was like in, you know, in, in human form, that was the problem. It's just, there wasn't a clear image that people can get in their heads of like, okay, if my taxes go up, I will get free healthcare out of this. And it's just, it's just like, you just rather be honest with people that might just be easier and just say, Hey, yeah, your taxes go up, but you do get these benefits. And in that case, you your, know. your health insurance premiums go to zero. Uh, there you go. <laughs> so, yeah. see, and, and that's the, and that's the one thing that I see out of this, uh, you know, bill is that, you know, if you, if, yeah, you may have higher taxes, but, you can have, you know, a better, you know, uh, quality of life because of it. You're going to have, you know, prescription drug costs can go down. Healthcare premiums can go down. I mean, maybe, you know, we can, you know, you know, you're going to have better schools. You're not going to have to worry about, you know, your roads being poor. You're going to have, you know, buses and we can have a, a better transit. It's like if, if people, like you said, if we can get people to understand when you pay into, you know, society, we can have a better functioning society. And part of that does come with the messaging. And we also want to recognize the listener's perspective that part of it does come from the government, making sure that they utilize the resources in the efficient ways, because as we have seen throughout the history of America, we've been given the government taxation revenue and they haven't equitably used it for a lot of our communities, particularly ours. So I understand, you know, I'm always, I'm not going to say I'm a Joe Manchin, but <laughs> I am one that's a, a moderate. So I always like to kind of mesh both sides and come up with a policy that we can align that works. So Bill, uh, or rather just to make sure we do it formally, uh, Dr. William Gale, you know, you have been awesome throughout this conversation about taxation reform, uh, much needed um, for us and our community, much needed for everybody here. And listeners, remember, you've been joined today, as I said, by Dr. William Gale, uh, Director of the Retirement Security Project, um, J. Arthur and Francis Fearing Miller Chair, and also a co-director uh, for the Taxation Policy Center, or rather the Tax Policy Center. So, Dr. Gale, we appreciate you and thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. This was a really interesting dis- discussion. Perfect, perfect. So, listeners, uh, we're going to let uh, Bill go. And then when Dev and I come back, we're going to give you our ending. So stick with us. We'll be right back. You have been listening to the Black Agenda podcast hosted by Adrian Guest and Devin Dito. If you enjoy listening to the show, let the host know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash Black Agenda Pod and give a few dollars. After all, the Black Agenda podcast is supported by listeners like you. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, let's go ahead and do our ending. Our next episode is going to be week around number 23. That's going to be coming to you this Saturday, November 20th. Make sure you mark your calendar for that one. Our weekly roundups this season have actually been doing really well, and we're excited about that. Devin and I, we switched things over to be more Black-centric. We even started adding some updates on prior stories, not to mention going global. We really wanted to make sure to keep you aware of what's going on here and abroad. Don't forget, for those people who aren't regular, we do have some funny stuff for you. We call it our quick hits, but it's a lot of great news for you, so make sure you check it out. That's this Saturday, week roundup number 23. 
coming to you November the 20th. Our next episode is going to be coming out next week. And remember, next week is Thanksgiving week. So we're doing a special episode for Thanksgiving that talks about the black diet because there's a lot of misconceptions around the black diet. So we want to kind of go and dive into that. We're going to be joined by Christina Johnson. She's a non-diet registered dietitian out of Dallas, Texas. We're even going to give you some tips on how to eat well on a budget. We know everyone's on a budget, so we want to give you some of those as we're coming out of this pandemic. So like I said, be on the lookout for that coming to you next week, November the 23rd. Donations. Can't forget about that now because Devin and I were trying to do something special. And here in America, you can't do anything without money. We all know that from paying your bills, buying grocery, putting gas in the tank, even whenever you have great ideas on how to bring progress to communities who need it, that takes money too. And that's why we always ask you listeners to donate. Go to our website, blackagendapie.com. If you're listening to us in the Pie Bean app, there's actually a donations tab right there. When you give to Devin and myself in the Black Agenda, we'll give you something back. We have a lot of different patron levels in there. So when you give, we give you stuff too. So like I said, go to our website, blackagendapod.com, click the donate tab and start giving. And while we're talking about giving and being in a charitable mood, we always like to talk about our charity of the month. Don't forget, November is Diabetes Awareness Month. And we've been talking about the American Diabetes Association, which is a large nonprofit association that works to influence and lobby and do a lot of things to help people with diabetes. They're a network of 565,000 volunteers, and they have a vision that's a life free of diabetes and its burdens. And their mission is to prevent and cure diabetes and to improve the lives of people affected by diabetes. And as the black community really, really impacts us and any minority group. So make sure you go check them out. We always like to mention that we're on all the majors, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Our handle is at Black Agenda Pod. Again, that's at Black Agenda Pod. Make sure you like us. You know, we've been trying to build up our likes and stuff like that. Follow us, too. So that way, whenever we publish something, you'll be in the loop and you'll be able to know what's going on. And don't forget to share it. We know thousands of people, but you know thousands more people. So we can fuse our people together and we can make a really, really big network. So help us out with that. Always, thank you to our guest, Dr. William Gale. You know, I'm a little geeky, so I like talking about taxes, but he really made it fun, and it was a great conversation. And thank you to his organization, Tax Policy Center, for coordinating his schedule and making him available. And lastly, to our listeners, y'all are awesome. You know, you've you've made season three really successful for Devin and me. Um, season three is actually outperforming season one and season two. So hats off to you. Kudos. Thank you. Devin and I were doing something right, but we can't do it without you. So we really, really appreciate you. But we got to keep having you here. Make sure you join us next time. That's going to be this weekly roundup, number 23, that's coming to you this Saturday, November 20. Until then, we'll catch you next time. 